0: Um, so a couple of things before we begin. Number one is inshaAllah ta'ala from this week onwards. Um, if you have any questions throughout the class, please feel free to raise your hand and ask the question. So you don't have to wait to the end. Because if you forget your question and then you're trying to remember what it was that you wanted to ask about and so on. If you have a question, you can raise your hand. And if I remember, inshallah, like I'll prompt you, like if you finish a verse, before we go on to the next verse, I'll be like, you know, are there any questions concerning that? Um, so if you have questions, just put your hand up. Like, always does that anyway? Five times, six times in the class. So don't feel shy. We're doing that anyway. So if you have any questions, inshallah, um, you know, please feel free to do that and also for the online crowd you folks inshallah uh, they're going to sort me out with a monitor so I'll have a monitor next to me where I can see your online comments and that way you can like interact with me directly as well and I don't have to go through this chain of narration <laughs> that sometimes is weak uh, and doesn't always like give me the stuff that I need so, but we're just waiting for like a couple of cable a cable or something to come through so we can set that up as well so um, because remember the idea of this class is it's not a lecture right? it's not just me like teaching you and then at the end if you have any questions it's meant to be and it is a class where we're taking things very slowly we're going into things in a lot of detail and obviously the benefit the point of that is that you have that ability to ask the questions that you wouldn't normally get if it's just like a, a general lecture or if it's something which you're watching online or anything like that so uh, this week, insha'Allah, we're beginning with the second verse of Surah Al-Nasr. So last week we finished the first verse, and we spoke about the statement of Allah subhanahu wa taala, "Ila jaa Rasulullahi wal-Fat'h," when the conquest of Allah, or the victory of Allah, or the help and aid of Allah, and the conquest comes. And we said that this surah is a surah that speaks about how the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is being given a signal, a sign from Allah azza wa that is time on this earth is coming to an end right his life is coming to an end and so the prophet sallallahu is being told to now take that as a sign and to practically apply from that sign that he should finish off his time upon earth by making tasbih of Allah by praising Allah azza wa jal, by seeking Allah subhanahu wa Taala's forgiveness and we'll come on to that inshaAllah when it comes to the last verse Guys, if you can keep your children, please, quiet. Stop and so, uh, and this is like a very important point, right? Because one of the problems that we have often when we speak or when we study the Qur'an, when we study tifseer, or when we study Hadith, or when we study the Seerah, is that often we study things in isolation. And we don't often think about them in the context of everything else that we know and that we've studied concerning for example the quran or the life of the prophet sallallahu so for example here the prophet sallallahu is being told that after his 20 odd years of prophethood of striving of struggling of sacrifice of hardship of trials and tribulations now he's going to see the fruits of his efforts he's going to see the results of all of those years that he's put in right and that automatically gives us a lesson that when you make dua to Allah and you turn to Allah and you trust in Allah and you ask of Allah جل, it is not the case that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always immediately answer your needs answer your calls if the Prophet sallallahu Alaihi wasallam has to wait 20 odd years for his mission to be completed then what about us right what about me and you and so often we're listening and we we read the surah and we understand oh the prophet has the conquest of mecca and he's been given this signal of his of the end of his life but then we forget about the 20 years of hardship right so don't when you study the quran when you study the sunnah when you study the seerah remember that there are these are people involved and hardships involved in real life scenarios that took place and events right so a couple of weeks ago or was it last week or the week before i don't remember when we were speaking about the conquest of mecca and we mentioned, for example, the story of how Abu Sufyan is coming to the Prophet ﷺ and Al Abbas, who is the uncle of the Prophet, ﷺ, is giving him safe passage. And Umar sees him, and then they start to go and debate and argue in front of the Prophet ﷺ as to what to do with Abu Sufyan. Right? His life is hanging in the balance. And these two senior, major companions are having this discussion, and it's a heated discussion in the presence of the Prophet. ﷺ which shows you that when you're studying the seerah, when you're studying these verses of the Qur'an, these were real people with real emotions, with differences of opinion, with in all of those dynamics that we have today when we discuss issues with our families and our friends and our spouses and our children. So it is incorrect to assume because sometimes we put them into this pristine glass cage. We put them into something which, you know, and it seems like, oh, you know, they're devoid of emotion. We all, all, almost make it so that it's just this idealistic scenario, and we forget that these were people who suffered. Umar <coughs> stands towards Abu Sufyan. It's not because of a personal thing, like he made clear to Abbas. It's not because of family or anything else. It's because they've suffered. What are we doing? It's one more. It more? Is that, is that red it's still not. Start again. No. Yeah. Okay, so these were people who have... So Umar radiyallahu anhu his stance towards Abu Sufyan is because of years and years of hardship that he's seen and difficulty and sacrifice, and Abu Sufyan was a big part of that. Right? And so it's important when we understand this, therefore, that we look at what Allah azza wa is saying in that more complete and fuller context. So Allah جل, in the second verse he says وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسَ oh, this is dangerous وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسَ يَدْخُلُونَ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ أفواجة. And when you see the people entering into the religion of Allah in groups right in droves this verse and I think we mentioned maybe very briefly, we touched upon this last week, that some of the scholars said, uh, I'm not coming to this issue of what does it mean, ورأيت, right? and to see, right? Is it a physical scene? Is it an actual scene that Allah Azza wa Jalla is referring to that you will physically see people entering into Islam? Or does it, does it mean you will come to know? Right? It is a type of knowledge, right? So for example, as we often say in our conversation, or do you see if you go and do something right it doesn't mean that you actually go and do something it means you see as in you know right that's very common we often say that right do you see what happens when you do this do you see if so and so goes there that seeing is not an actual eyesight seeing it's a sight of knowledge a sight of an insight almost right you know something because of your experience and your knowledge the verse here therefore eight and nas and you will see the people is it a physical seeing Or is there a site of knowledge? So some of the scholars said it is a physical scene. It's actually the Prophet seeing people entering into Islam into drones, right? And we know that after the conquest of Mecca, conquest of Mecca, what happens? The Prophet goes to afterwards the Battle of Hunayn, and then he lays siege to Ta'if, to the people of Thaqif, and then he'll come back to Medina. And before the Battle of Tabuk, most likely. Many of the Arab delegations, it is called Amul Wufud, the ninth year of the Hijrah, the year of delegations. All of these different delegations from the Arabian Peninsula start to enter into Islam. Then the final battle is Tabuk of the Prophet ﷺ that he participated in. And then shortly after that you have the Farewell Hajj. So, some of the scholars said therefore that this Surah is revealed around the ninth year of the Hijrah. Because if it's a physical scene, that the Prophet is seeing all of these multitudes of people accepting Islam, then it's referring to these delegations that were coming. And these delegations began after the conquest of Mecca, but where they really picked up was the ninth year of the Hijrah, right? And said, no, it refers to, you will come to know, right? This is something that you will come to see. So it's not necessary that it's the ninth year, it could have been before that, and Allah knows best, Voice. Yes, yeah, so that's what I was saying, right? So we're saying if, if, so the question is, can't we say that it was revealed in the eighth year but the second verse is referring to something in the future? That's what the whole argument is, right? If it's a physical seeing, then it's something which the scholars say, okay, so then now the Prophet has to physically see this. But if it's like a seeing as in you'll come to see, you'll come to know, right, this is something now that's going to happen, then it's not necessarily that it was after the delegations came that the verse was revealed. Could have been before that, right? And that's why you have those two opinions as to what the word "raa" to see means in the context of this verse. However, either way, what you know is isn't disputed is that this is something that would happen. Right? And we know from the seer of the Prophet that it is something which happened. There's a hadith that is, it's asl, uh, is in Ibn Hibban, uh, and it's an authentic hadith. The hadith of Ibn Abbas, رضي Allah He says that when the verse, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ was revealed to the end of the surah, he said that the Prophet ﷺ knew that it was a signal, a sign for the end of his life. So he started to do more. Right? He started to increase more in worship and so on. And remember we said this, I think a couple of weeks ago, that there is that principle therefore taken from this surah that if someone knows or they fear for the, for the end of their life or they're diagnosed with a severe illness or a terminal illness or because of old age or for whatever reason they anticipate that their days are numbered short, that they increase more in ibadah, that they do more. And, and that's natural to an extent because when you know that your time is limited, you're obviously going to start realigning your properties. Uh, priorities, not property, uh, properties, properties be as well, but priorities, you're going to realign, start realigning your priorities and start realigning your, you know, what's important to you and what you put forward and what you push back, that's natural. But also this shows that there is an Islamic principle to play there as well and that is from the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? So Islam doesn't say, for example, if the whole of your life all you did was the bare basics. And now you're like 70 or something and you fear for the end of your life or you've been diagnosed with a severe illness you can't do anything more you have to stick to what you were on no you can do more right if you feel now that you should do more you should do more and obviously without doubt this is something that we should be doing from now right irrespective of your age irrespective of your health and so on that's obviously without doubt that's the way you should be but just because it is isn't that way doesn't mean that you can't later on go on to start doing that so then he says, he, and, and the hadith continues, that the Prophet wasallam said, after the conquest of Mecca, and after the help of Allah that came, that Allah mentioned in this surah, and after the people of Yemen came. He, rather, he said when he heard this uh, surah, that the victory of Allah will come, and the conquest will come, and the people of Yemen will come. And he singled out Yemen. Singled out Yemen. So they said, or a person said, or oh, Messenger of Allah, and who are the people of Yemen? Who are the people of Yemen? Right, now obviously the Arabs, to some extent, know who, where Yemen is and who the Yemenis are and so on, but it's not something which, obviously it's not like today where people are that closely linked, where you would have an intimate knowledge of these different areas. And it's possible that this companion or this man didn't know. So who are the people of Yemen? He said, people who, the Prophet Sallallahu replied, people who have soft hearts, Gentle hearts, right? and by the way, this is a big shout out for Yemenis. Right? Anyone Yemeni here? This is like a big shout out. There are people with soft hearts, gentle hearts, and then he said, al iman yamani Iman is Yemeni, and Hikmah, wisdom, is Yemeni, yamani. and Fiqh, understanding, is Yemeni. Right? Now, before everyone gets excited, <laughs> what that actually means is that these were people who willingly themselves came to embrace Islam. So the Prophet ﷺ didn't have to fight them, didn't have to force them. They were people who were defeated and then now thought, okay, let's go and accept Islam. They're people who themselves took the initiative, even though it's late one, eighth, ninth year hijrah, but they took the initiative themselves that they would come. Right? According to some narrations of Seerah, seven, eight hundred people from Yemen would come in the delegations to accept Islam and that's a colossal number, it's a very big number. Most of the delegations, if you look through the books of history and seerah, are maybe 50, 60, a dozen, two dozen, right? Those are the numbers we're normally talking about. A delegations delegation not easy to travel from one side of Arabia to another. Numbers are relatively small, right? 60, 70 is probably the most that you're getting. They have hundreds coming. So because of this, the Prophet ﷺ spoke about them in this way, right? That these are people of wisdom. This is they're people of iman. They've come and they've readily accepted it themselves. But without doubt, it shows that there is, you know, these virtues about those people of Yemen from the time of the Prophet ﷺ. And then we have the other delegations. Yeah. Can that apply to the people of Yemen now? Can, you- can that apply to the people of Yemen now? Allah, I don't. It's possible. It's possible and um, it's possible, I mean, the, the, because the general hadith that you see, so for example, there's the hadith where the Prophet pointed towards the west, right, to Iraq and so on, and he said, Al fitan minha huna, trials and tribulations are coming from that direction. That doesn't mean, by the way, that it's not allowed or everything from that place is, bad, right? Or it's something, you know, whatever. Because, you know, for example, major companions, Ibn Mas'ud, Ali radiallahu anhu, Abu Ash, many of the senior companions went and settled in those lands, willingly, right? And the other hadith, Medina is better for them if only they knew. Right? That's a hadith where most people it. Really, they think, oh, if you're in Medina, you should stay in Medina. Or you should, by any way and means, get to Medina. But we forget that many, many companions and senior companions willingly left Medina from Ibn Abbas to Ibn Mas'ud to Ali to Abu Musa to Abu Darda and the list goes on and on and on and on, right? So many of them, and these are major companions, willingly leave Medina because they understood therefore that these hadith are not meant to be understood in that context, right? So likewise with this hadith, yes there is good in Yemen and there is good in the people of Yemen and there is good in wherever. But that doesn't mean that everything from Yemen is good. Or all of the people of Yemen are good, right? That's not the way these ahadith are hadith understood within that like very, you know, black and white context. Yeah, go. Cool. What does Yemen mean in Arabic? What does Yemen mean in Arabic? That's a very good question. So now you're gonna to have to research that and bring it back to me next week. That's the flip side of this. <laughs> if I don't know, someone's gonna have to go tell me. It's probably from the word yameen, I would guess, right? Yameen, yameen, But anyway, your father will help you. Okay, so, so we have the years of de- the year of delegations, right? And I want you to go through some of these delegations because this is what Allah is referring to. After 20 odd years of hardship, of, of you know, trial, of tribulation, all of that, now, Allah is saying, You will see the fruits of your labors. You will have all of these different Arab tribes willingly, openly coming and accepting Islam. And the year of dedications doesn't mean that every single tribe that came accepted Islam. There were some who came and met with the Prophet and they went back and they stayed as non Muslim. And others who came and they became Muslim. And others who came and they didn't become Muslim but they agreed to pay a tax to the Muslims. They agreed to pay the Muslims' money in return for protection and that they wouldn't be attacked, right? That they wouldn't be attacked by the Muslim armies. So you have these different delegations. I'm going to go through a few of them. The first of them is a delegation called Abdul Qais, Waftu Abdul Qais. The tribe of Abdul Qais comes from the eastern part of the Arabian Peninsula. So uh, in the books of Sirah, you'll find that it's called Bahrain. But Bahrain isn't the Bahrain that we know today because Bahrain today is like a tiny little country. Bahrain in that time was much bigger, but it's still in that same general direction of the Arabian Peninsula. These people, Abdul Qais, the waft of Abdul Qais, they would come in the ninth year of the Hijrah. But before this time, in the fifth year, a group of them came, like maybe a dozen or so. And they came to the Prophet wasallam. In the fifth year of the Hijrah, it said that there were 13, 14 of them. And amongst them was one who was one of the younger ones in age and his name was Abdullah ibn Auf al ashaj and he's famous if you read in the books of Sirah and so on you'll find the name Ashajj Abdul Qais Ashajj Abdul Qais Ashaj is his family name, Abdul Qais is the tribe name so he's known as Ashajj Abdul Qais and he came and he sat with the Prophet and accepted Islam some of the narrations say that the group of people came, 12-13 of them the delegation, this is in the fifth year right before the conquest of Mecca. This is not the year of delegations. This is just a group of them who came to learn about Islam. And they heard and they learned about Islam and they left. Al-Ashlajj Abdul Qais, as they left, he made an excuse. He stayed behind and he went and he bathed and he put on two clothes, like new clothing. And he came back to the Prophet wasallam, and he said that, I want to become Muslim, want to accept Islam. So this is a common, a, or fairly well-known hadith in the Tirmidhi where the Prophet Sallallahu said to him that indeed you have within you two attributes that Allah and his Messenger love. Two attributes that Allah and his Messenger love. Al-Hilm wal anah Al-Hilm is forbearance, that you're not quick to become angry, forbearance. And number two, Anah, which is that you're calm and you're collected. Right? These are two attributes that Allah and his Prophet Sallallahu love. Your forbearance, meaning you're extremely patient, you don't lose your temper, you don't like quickly you know, lose your top. And number two, that you're calm, you're collected, you're measured in the way that you think, in the way that you respond, you think things through. This is something which Allah and which his Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam loved. And then he went back. And in the ninth year, on the eighth, ninth year of the Hijrah, his tribe comes. And they come and there's a group of them this time, and the Prophet heard of them coming, or he knew of them coming, and he gave the companions glad like tidings, and he made du'a for these people, the tribe of Abdul Qais So when they come in, uh, they said one of the things that they stayed for a few days. But one of the things they said to the Prophet was, "O Messenger of Allah, between us and you are tribes that are enemies. Right? So they're not Muslims; they haven't accepted Islam. They're enemies." And so it's difficult for us to constantly come to Medina. And this, by the way, is very common, right? And you see from the fiqh and from the understanding of the Prophet ﷺ, that you have people who would only come and their whole time with the Prophet ﷺ is limited to days. That's their only interaction as companions. So not every companion was like Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali. Not every companion is like, you know, Aisha and Abu Huraira and all of these names that we know, there were many Muslims who only met the Prophet for a few days, some of them only in the farewell hajj. That was their only interaction. And there's a hundred thousand plus companions, so how much one-to-one time did they get with the Prophet Party? any. Anyway. Others came for a delegation, they stayed for a few days, they stayed for a week, they stayed for two weeks, and they left. So this is a group that's saying that we can't come every, every, you know, frequently every now and then because there are warring triumphs between us. It's not a safe journey for us. People are fighting, killing, there's war going on, we can't come. So why don't you tell us something? So the Prophet ﷺ said, I order you with four. The shahadatain establish the prayer, give the zakah, and Ramadan. Why didn't we mention hajj?
1: Other than ways, anyone other than, please, someone other than, yeah?
0: It's difficult for them to travel because of the war. how would they make Okay, you've, you've stepped you jumped ahead one, it. because it's not obligatory yet it's obligated in the 10th year of the Hijrah, right so what you're saying is true right so if it's a, it's not a safe path for you then hajj is an obligatory if you can't get to mecca safely but at this time it's not, and this also shows you what from the from the way that you understand the sunnah is you can't take a hadith like this and say there's only four pillars right the sunnah complements one another It's like building blocks. You can't just take one and say, no, but this hadith said, therefore, it's only four, and therefore, no one has to make hajj. No, you have to take the sunnah in context in its entirety. And a hadith finish off one another. So for these people, there were only four pillars of Islam at the time. So he told them the four. And that's why the narration says, and hajj had not yet been obligated. And then he said to them, that don't drink, because they were people who used to drink. Right? And he said to them, don't use certain types of vessels. And the Prophet ﷺ, by the way, would often do this also. So when people come and they say, "Oh, Messenger of Allah, advise us. Many times in the sunnah you get this hadith. "Oh, Messenger of Allah, advise us. And what you'll find every single time, that advice is different. Or the hadith is, "Oh, Messenger of Allah, what is the most beloved action to Allah? And again, the order of the most beloved actions to Allah, change every single time right why because the prophet ﷺ is looking at the situation before him the people before him what do they need what are their issues so when he's saying to these people don't drink it's not because that's the most or the only important thing in islam or the most important thing in islam no it means for these people they had a drink problem right they had issues with alcohol and that's what they needed to focus on and so the Prophet, and this is obviously from the fiqh of dawah that the prophet used to have dealing with different people according to their situations. So that's the first, delega- that's one example of a delegation. Actually, I've read that this group was the first to pray Jum'ah. Yeah, that's, that's also said. So for example, it said that they were the first ones to openly come and accept Islam is the, outside of like Medina. They were the first ones therefore to build a masjid when they went back to Abd Qais, the area of Bahrain. And they were the first ones to then have their own Jum'ah prayer that's mentioned in the books of Seerah. And obviously, you know, these are a hadith, right? So you don't have change of narration in Seerah, they're just narrations. So, you know, like authentic or authentic, but it is mentioned in in many books of Seerah, and Allah knows best. Okay. Then we have another example is the waft of, or the delegation of Banu Sa'ad ibn Bakr. And I'm giving you some of the main delegations that came. Uh, Banu Sa'ad ibn Bakr is a tribe, um, that lived in the desert. It's right? so, a Bedouin tribe. Right? And Banu Sa'ad bin Bakr, I think, is the same tribe of Halima. Halima to Sa'adiyya, who was the witness of the Prophet. He went to live with her as a child and so on. That's Banu Sa'ad bin Bakr. They were living in the desert, right? they were Bedouins. So there came a man, and this hadith is in Sahih Muslim, and the usal of this hadith, actually, it's a hadith of Anas. But this is a hadith, I think, uh, that is collected in the six books of hadith. All six major books of hadith have this one narration, that's very rare. Right, there's like tens of thousands of hadith, but it is rare for a hadith to be collected by Bukhari, and muslim and Abu dawud and An nasai and al Tirmidhi, and Ibn Majah. I think there's only like four or five hundred hadith from the tens of thousands that all six agreed upon. Right, this is, I think, one of them. Anyway. Uh, One of their leaders, the leaders of this tribe, his name was Dhamam ibn Tha'laba. And Dhamam ibn Tha'laba is a rough guy, he's a rough man because he's the chief of a Bedouin tribe. And they're rough. The hadith of Anas actually says, the full narration, it says that we, the companions, were told not to excessively ask questions of the Prophet And we know that, right? We know that Allah Azza wa said in the Quran to the Muslims or the companions يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تَسْأَلُوا عَنْ أَشْيَاءِ إِن O oh, you who believe, don't ask about things uh, which if they are made clear to you, will be difficult for you. And if you ask concerning them whilst the Quran is still being revealed, they will be made apparent. And Allah has forgiven you for them, Meaning, don't make the religion hard for yourself by asking excessive questions. Do we have to do this and like this and this way and that way? Because the more that you ask, the Prophet has to respond. And the more that he responds, the more restricted and tightly defined the issue becomes. So for example, the hadith where the Prophet was speaking about hajj and one of the companions stood up and he said, Is that every year, O Messenger of Allah, that we have to make hajj every year? So the Prophet went quiet. And then he said, Were I to say yes, it would be so and you wouldn't be able to do it. And then he said, Leave me alone so long as I don't say. Because the Prophet isn't not mentioning something because he's forgotten, he doesn't know, he's ignorant. No. He's not mentioning it because there is a wisdom behind his silence. And that's what Allah is saying in the Quran. So Anas radiallahu an says, We the companions, we never used to ask a lot of questions because of these verses. So we would wait for the Bedouin to come from the desert to enter into the masjid and speak because they're not people who are around, they haven't heard these verses, they don't know what Allah said and say They're just like, you know, your average Muslim. They're not students, they're not scholars, no one. So they're going to come and they're going to ask and they're going to ask what they need to ask. So this is an example. Dhamaam ibn Tha'laba comes in, he's a rough man, the narration says he came with ponytails two ponytails, his hair were in two ponytails, right? And I don't know if you guys have seen uh, the pictures of the Arabs like from, you know, a hundred odd years ago, right? In, in the olden days, Saudi Arabia and so on. You'll find that the Bedouins often had ponytails, right, in those photos, because that's the way that they would hold their hair. So anyway, he came in to the masjid, and he came straight to the masjid, he tied up his camel, and he came in and he said, ibn Abdul Which one of you is the son of Abdul Muttalib? Who's Abdul Muttalib? His grandfather. The grandfather of the Prophet right? Not even his father. But obviously Abdul Muttalib is famous amongst Arab. the Arabs. Which one of you is the children of Ibn Abdul Muttalib? So they showed him to the Prophet So he came close and he said, Oh Muhammad, I'm going to ask you, right? because remember these are people who they're Islam, he's not a Muslim yet, but they're people who are rough. right? People who don't have the etiquette. Oh Muhammad. I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to be tough in my question. So don't become angry. That's what he said to him. am going to ask you and I'm going to be rough. But don't be angry. So the Prophet ﷺ said, ask. He said that a man came to us. A man came to us and he claimed that you are a messenger that Allah sent. Man came to us, my tribe. They said that you are a messenger from Allah. He said, sadaq. The Prophet ﷺ said he spoke the truth. So he asked him, فَمَنْ Who created the heavens? The Prophet ﷺ said, Allah. He said, And who created the earth? The Prophet ﷺ said, Allah. And he said, And who caused the mountains to stand erect? He said, Allah. And then he said, And who placed in it, what you placed in it? Right from the vegetation, the, you know, everything, the earth, the oceans, the trees, who placed everything within it? He said, Allah. So he said, then I ask you, by the one who created the heavens and created the earth and made the mountains to stand tall, did Allah send you as his messenger? And he said, yes. And then, Dhamam Karizan, he said that your messenger then also claimed to us that we have to pray five times every day and night. The Prophet said he spoke the truth. He said, so I ask you, by the one who sent you Allah, is that what he commanded? And the Prophet ﷺ said, yes. He said, and then your messenger also claimed that we have to give zakah on our wealth." He said, yes. He said, I ask you by the one who is Allah that sent you, is that what we have to do? He said, yes. He said, and then your messenger also said that we have to come, uh, we have to fast in the month of Ramadan. He said, that is true. He said, by Allah, the one who sent you, is that what he told you to say? He said, yes. I said, and then he also claimed that we have to make Hajj if we are able to do so. He said, yes. He said, therefore, oh, by the one that sent you with the truth, is that what he commanded you to say? He said, yes. And then he turned away and he said, by the one who sent you with all of this truth, I will neither do more than this, nor will I do less. And he left. There you go. Done. Great. Simple as. I'm not going to do any more. I'm not going to do any less. And he left. The Prophet ﷺ said after he left in this hadith, as I said, is collected by the six, it is an authentic hadith. But if he is truthful, he will enter into Jannah. If he is truthful, he will enter into Jannah. This man in Damam, right, and Bamam, right, It shows you by the way that some of these delegations are an individual. So when they say delegations in the books of Sirah doesn't even mean it's a group. But it means that they were representatives of their tribes and their people. This man, Bamam ibn Thalaba will then go back to his people, his tribe of Banu Sa'ad bin Bakr, and he will tell them this is what this man came with, this is what he said, and I have accepted his religion. And the people, his whole tribe on the same day accepted Islam, all of them. They became Muslim. So the scholars in the books of Seerah say that it said that no one, no one person had more of a positive effect on their tribe than Dhamaab ibn Thalaba. No one person had more of a positive effect on the whole tribe, that because of him, the whole tribe wholesale becomes Muslim, then Bama ibn Thalaba Okay. Another delegation that we have is the waft of Najran, right? the delegation of Najran. And the delegation of Najran is a group of people who are come. Najran is in the southern um, tip of the Arabian Peninsula towards the border of Yemen. Right, so it's in modern day Saudi Arabia, but towards the border of Yemen. And they came to the Prophet ﷺ, and there were, it said, about 60 or 70 of them. And they were a people who were Christians. Uh, sisters, the children are making a lot of noise. And they're disturbing the class, and they're disturbing everyone online, so please. Um, so, they came, the 60, 70 of them, they were Christians. The people of Najran are Christians. And they came in their finery, they came wearing silk clothing, they came with adornments you know, like jewellery of gold and silver to show their wealth and their prosperity and their position amongst the Arabs. And they came to Medina and they sat in Medina wanting to speak to the Prophet ﷺ. But the Prophet ﷺ refused to meet them. So some of the companions said he refuses to meet you because you're wearing silk and you're wearing gold. If you remove this, he'll speak to you. So they did so and they came and the Prophet ﷺ met with them. And he said to them, they said to him, we believe in the Prophets before you came. We already accepted Jesus and Moses and all of these Prophets. We have already accepted them. So the Prophet ﷺ said to them, what stops you from becoming Muslim is three things. Number one, that you worship the cross. Number two, that you eat uh, pig meat. And number three, that you claim that Allah has a child. They said yes Because who is like Isa Who is like Isa السلام, That Allah created him From a mother Without a father He's unique Right And that's when Allah sent The uh, Revealed the verse In the Quran Inna mathala Isa Kamathali Adam Right The example of Isa In the sight of Allah Is like the example of Adam Isa is created From a mother With no father Adam was created With neither mother nor father Right And then Likewise, you have another verse that Allah Jalla revealed, and that is the verse of Mubahala. Mubahala meaning that we will take an oath by Allah, us and our families, meaning the Prophet and his family, and those people and their families, that whoever is speaking the truth, Allah will destroy the liars. Right? And this verse is mentioned also in the Qur'an, in Surah Ali Imran. And so the Prophet Allah says, abn'aana, wa let us come together. I will call my children, you call your children. وَنِسَاءَنَا وَنِسَاءَكُمْ And our women folk, your women folk. And we ourselves, and you yourselves, And then we will make this uh, type of oath before Allah. فَنَجْعَلْ اللَّهِ على And we will ask Allah to curse the lies. And the Prophet it said in some narrations, he gathered his family together, Fatima and Ali and Hassan and Hussein. He readied them. And he said, tomorrow morning, we're going to do this. Ready. And so when the people of Najran heard this, they said, by Allah, if he is a prophet, we will be destroyed. If he is a prophet and we do this with him, we will be destroyed. So they said instead that we will give the jizya, we will pay the tax, and in return, you don't fight us. And the Prophet accepted this, and they left and they went back. Likewise, you have the, uh, another delegation is the delegation of Ta'if. Right? So remember Ta'if is the land which at the beginning of Islam did what? The very early years they pelted the Prophet ﷺ. Right? They're the ones that stoned the Prophet They're the ones that hurt the Prophet ﷺ. After the conquest of Mecca, the Prophet ﷺ goes and he lays siege to Ta'if. But the siege is a siege which doesn't end. And so the Prophet ﷺ says to the companions one day, let's go home. Right? We, we can't win like this. We'll go home. We're going back to Medina The companions, some of them said, no, O Messenger of Allah, we'll fight and we'll win like we did on the day of Badr. The next day, a group of them were injured, right? A good few companions in the fighting were injured. They're laying siege to a city, they can't get into the city, they're laying siege and a few of them were injured. And so at the end of the day, the Prophet said to them again, let's go, let's go back. And this time they said, yes, O Messenger of Allah, we're ready. So the Prophet smiled. All it took was one day and they're like, okay, enough, right, let's go. And the Prophet was like, well, you know, I was saying this to you yesterday. So they agreed that they would go back. So this is the people of you know, of, of, um, of Ta'if, right? And one of the famous companions of a Ta'if is Urwa ibn Mas'ud al-Thakafi. Thaqafi, Urwa ibn Mas'ud is someone whose name comes many times in the seerah. He's one of the ones who was closely involved in the treaty of Hudaybiyyah. He was asked to come on board as an advisor for the Quraysh side. They were seeking his advice. And he was one of the people who said to the Quraysh that you should make a treaty with him. You should make a treaty with him, and that's a good thing to do, right? And Urwa ibn Mas'ud, um, an, later on will become a Muslim. But there's a verse in the Qur'an in which Allah Azza wa says, quoting the Quraysh of Mecca, one of the, the leaders of Quraysh said that surely if Allah was going to reveal a Qur'an, give revelation, he should have given it to one of the two men of the two great cities. Meaning a leader either from Mecca or from Quraysh. قَتَادَ some of the They said in the tafsir. That the man from Mecca that's speaking, that's referring to himself, is Al Waleed ibn Al Mughirah. And the man that is referring to from Taif is Urwa ibn Mas'ud. Right? Why, if Allah is going to reveal the Quran, why give it to Muhammad? He's an orphan, doesn't have any money, he's a nobody. If he was surely going to give the Quran, and again, that's that faulty thinking that Allah, if he was surely going to favor someone, he would favor the strong, the rich, the powerful, the noble. Right, why doesn't he give it to someone like me or someone like Urwa ibn Mas'ud because of his position in, 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 in Ta'if? Urwa ibn Mas'ud is also mentioned in the Sunnah. He's the one that the Prophet ﷺ said that I saw the Prophet of Allah, Isa السلام, and the person who looked, resembled him most in appearance is Urwa ibn Mas'ud. Right, Urwa ibn Mas'ud resembles him most in appearance and then I saw my father Ibrahim and the one who resembles him most is myself. And that's a hadith that is authentic. So Uram ibn Mas'ud becomes a Muslim. And he says to the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet says, come with me, let's go back to Medina. He says, no, O messenger of Allah, I am going to go to Ta'if, and I will go and call my people to Islam. And this is, I think, after the siege of Mecca, the siege of Ta'if. He accepts Islam, the Prophet says, come with us, come back with us. He says, no, I will go and call my people to Islam. The Prophet ﷺ said, I fear that if you do this, they will kill you. They will kill you. We're just, we're fighting. We're in war with them. We just laid siege to them. They're probably not in the mood to hear that one of their leaders has just accepted Islam. He said, No, O Messenger of Allah, they have so much love for me, so much respect, that if I, um, that they would treat me with more respect than their own daughters. Right? That's how much they, they love me. And if I was to sleep, they wouldn't even, wake me up out of fear for disturbing my comfort. Right? That's how much honor I have amongst them. So he left and he went back. But when he told his people that, they were, that he was Muslim, they became extremely upset. They became extremely upset with him. And they started to curse him. And, they started, and this is one of their leaders that they loved before. And he obviously thinks that they still love him. But once they hear about Islam, they turn on him. So it's said in some of the narrations of Sirah that he woke up Fajr one day and he went on top of the roof of his house uh, and he was, he was going to pray Fajr or he was going to give the Adhan and an arrow came in and struck him and he died from that. And it said that he said on his deathbed that I have no regrets because now I have been given martyrdom and you know, I am going to be with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi So this is Uruh Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. Yeah, that's mentioned in the books of, of Sirah also. I don't know about its authenticity, but it is mentioned in the books of Sirah. The Urway bin Mas'ud with his people was like the companion in Surah Yasin with his people, right? Because in Surah Yasin Allah says that he called his people and his people rejected him, right? They said, we don't accept you. That is the narration, but I don't know if it's authenticity. Um, so then the Prophet hears of this news obviously and he's upset. But later on, these people in the 90th year of the Hijrah, the people of Ta'if would send a delegation of their leaders and they would come to the Prophet ﷺ. Amongst the leaders in that delegation was Uthman ibn Abil As. Uthman ibn Abil As. And he was one of the younger companions, the younger people of that delegation. And he, whilst his people came and they were debating, with the, and by the way, when the people of Ta'if came as a delegation, they weren't happy to be Muslims they were resisting and then you know they would be like okay we'll become Muslim but we can still drink we'll become Muslim but we can still do this we'll become Muslim but we're not going to pray we'll be like as if they they have favor right and they can demand and they can choose what to accept and what to reject but this companion Uthman ibn Abi'l As, when his people would retire for the evening they would go he would stay back and he would learn the Quran and he would read the quran from the prophet or if he find the prophet was sleeping or he's tired or he's busy or he's preoccupied he would go to abu Bakr an, or one of the senior companions and he would learn the quran eventually you know these are people who are like we're not going to accept islam we're not going to accept Islam. but then slowly over the days like they're there for approximately two weeks or so over the days they start to accept okay we'll pray okay we'll give zakat. okay we won't drink okay and they start to slowly in this way Become Muslim or start to accept the tenets of Islam, which shows you the amazing patience of the Prophet. ﷺ. You know that patience and that forbearance, and people coming and resisting and fighting and arguing every day, day in, day out, over every single small issue, and the Prophet ﷺ just sitting there and he's taking it. And he's no, no. And he's not becoming angry, he's not losing his rag, just no. Can't happen. And now they get to the final point. The final point is that these are the people who have in their area of taif one of the greatest idols of the shirk of Arabia. One of the greatest idols that Allah Azza wa names in the Quran Al-Lat. Al-Lat was based in Taif. Right? And Allah Azza mentions this in Surah Najm, the name of this idol is mentioned. al wal-Uzza. Right? lat is one of the main idols that the Arabs used to worship, one of their major gods. Right? And that's why Allah Azza wa specifies this name the name of this idol in the quran they had as we know hundreds of them but allah specifies the name of this one because that's one of the main ones right that's like one of the major idols this was the final point of contention they said that we're not going to destroy the process you have to destroy it that's a condition can't let that idol go has to be destroyed they said okay then give us five years to destroy it said no you don't get five years okay four years no Three years? No. Two years? No. One year? No. Okay. Eleven months? No. Ten months? No. Until they come down to one month, and then the Prophet says, "You have not even a month. You need to get this done." So what they initially, eventually, what they would agree upon is that they would say, "Okay, it has to be destroyed, but we're not going to do it. You send someone else to do it, right?" And it said, that "Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira and Khalid ibn walid anhuma was sent." To go and destroy the idol. There is a narration that's mentioned in the books of uh, Tarajan, the books of biography, that, and, and Seerah. that when these two companions came, the reason why the people of Ta'if, they've accepted Islam but they're new Muslims, right? And the reason why they don't want to destroy the idol because they still have some fear that some harm will come to them. If you destroy the idol, we're going to get cursed, something's going to happen, we're going to get harmed. And so they have that fear because they're still very new Muslims. They still have. Those same fears and those same issues because they've been living that way for their whole lives. It said that when Al Waleed ibn Muqira and Khalid ibn Waleed, when they came to destroy the idol, Al Waleed said to Khalid that what we're going to do right, is I'm going to destroy the idol and then I'm going to fall down and pretend that I'm like hurting and in pain and so on. Right? And then when they see this, they're going to get scared and then I'm going to jump up and say, I was just joking. Right? And that's what he does. <laughs> which shows you a very, you know, like light side of the companions, that this is how they would do, and, and there is no doubt that there were companions who had a sense of humor, were known to be, you know, like people who joked and people who messed around and so on, and so that's like one of those narrations that's mentioned in some of the books of Seerah. Um, the last two delegations that I want to go into this, one of the other delegations um, that's probably worth mentioning is the delegation of Banu Hanifa. Banu Hanifa is a major tribe of Arabia. Major tribe. And it's the tribe that who comes from? Which notorious figure in history? Oh, um, Musaylama. Musaylama. The liar, Musaylimah al is one of the leaders of this tribe. So they came in the ninth year of the Hijrah. It said that there were 17 of them, and amongst them was Musaylama. Amongst them was musaylimah This is the man who would later on claim prophethood for himself. He would later on claim to be a prophet. And they came to the Prophet ﷺ to, uh, you know, obviously learn about Islam and so on and so forth. And the narration is different in terms of like what exactly musaylimah did. Did he initially accept Islam and then he apostated or did he not accept Islam in the first place and so on. But without doubt, one of the things he said to the Prophet ﷺ is, why don't you make me a leader after you or a leader alongside you? Right? You be a prophet and I'll be a prophet. Right? And it's reported in other places that he said, either to his own people or to some of the companions, that I will be a prophet with him and I will be like Harun to his Musa. Right? Like Harun and Musa were, that's how me and him will be. When the Prophet ﷺ heard him say this, he was holding a twig at the time or a branch. He said, by Allah, even if this was all you wanted to be the leader of, I wouldn't give it to you. Even if this is all you wanted, I still wouldn't give that to you. And Allah Azza wa Jal will deal with you. And there's a hadith in which the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Bukhari that the Prophet saw in a dream, uh, the treasures of the earth. And he saw on his, on his uh, wrists, two golden bracelets that he was wearing, the Prophet Sallallahu is wearing. And the Prophet Sallallahu said that, when I saw this, I became perturbed. Because we know that Muslim, Muslim men are not allowed to wear that type of jewelry. The Prophet said, I became disturbed, became perturbed. And then it was revealed to me, blow them and they will blow away. Blow on them and they will blow away. So I blew on them and they blew away. So the companions asked our Messenger of Allah, what do you, how do you interpret the stream? And he said that I interpret that there will be two false prophets who will come in my lifetime. False prophets, and we know that there's another hadith from the signs of the hour is that there will be 30 false prophets that will claim Prophethood after me. But in this particular narration it's as if the Prophet ﷺ is speaking about his lifetime. Musaylama would claim that in his lifetime in the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, he would claim Prophethood. And the other one was in Yemen. Aswad I think it was Aswad al Anazi. Aswad al These two claimed it in the lifetime of the Prophet. ﷺ. Others obviously, you know, would come and obviously even in in, in uh, closer times, contemporary times, we've still had people who to make that same claim. So Musa'ilama, it said when he returned, he didn't accept Islam and he returned back to uh, his area of Banu Hanifa. And because of his position, the people, when he claimed prophethood, many of his tribe's people, they accepted him as a prophet and they believed in him. And it said that Musa'ilama wrote a letter to the Prophet in which he said that Allah has given me what he has given you. And so therefore let us split everything in half, right? Half for me, half for you. Right, like he's doing inheritance. Half for me, half for you. And he replied and he said, The earth belongs to Allah. He gives it to whomsoever he wills. Right? So, anyway, Musaylim obviously in the time of Abu Bakr, radiallahu an, the Muslims would fight him, the companions, and they would be killed. Uh, he, would be, he would die in that battle. And who killed him? Oh, the... Wahshi. Wahshi. Wahshi, right? Was who was the assassin of? Uh, Hamza. Hamza, radiallahu anhu. Right. So he would be the one to strike and, and he would say often that this was in place of that killing of Hamza, this was in place of that. Right? Because Wahshi becomes a Muslim after all. The final, the final one um, that's mentioned, or the final one that I'm going to mention, there were many by the way, there are many. Right? But the final one that I will mention, and I'm mentioning this one because it is uh, related to that hadith that we mentioned of Yemen, is the delegations of Yemen that came. Right, so that the kings of Yemen sent people in their delegations to learn about Islam and so on, and many of those people accepted Islam. And when they wanted to leave and go back to Yemen, they asked the Prophet ﷺ to send with them someone to teach them. Right? Someone to teach them about their religion. So the Prophet ﷺ chose who? Mu'adh. Mu'adh ibn Jabal, the famous companion. Mu'adh goes back as a teacher and that's the famous hadith, you know, where the Rasul says to him, O oh, Mu'adh, you're going to a people of the book, so that the first thing that you call them to be, the shahada, and so on and so forth, right? That's that famous hadith. So he sends Mu'adh, and then later on, he sends also, which companion? Let's see how well we know our history. Mu'adh is the famous one, that's the easy one, everyone knows Mu'adh. Who's the other one? Abu Musa. Al an Abu Musa Al Ashari would return with the Farewell Hajj he would return back to Medina and he would come from the Farewell Hajj as for Muadh he would stay until after the death of the Prophet sallallahu and then he returned to Medina so he never saw the Prophet sallallahu after he left for Yemen right so these are basically the uh you know the delegations and this is what Allah is referring to Either physically, that the Prophet would see this, because he did see this. This took place in his lifetime to the extent that when the Prophet was dying, or when he died, passed away, the Arabian Peninsula, Arabian Peninsula today is what Saudi Arabia, Emirates, Yemen, you know, Oman. That whole region is called Arabian Peninsula, Jazirat al-Arab. The Arabian Peninsula would all of it be more or less under Islam. doesn't mean everyone's a muslim there but it means that it's come under the rule of islam and the muslims right and that's what the prophet is being told when there was a time remember at the beginning of islam that no one was becoming hardly anyone was accepting islam right you the Prophet would secretly go and call people and they would gather secretly right and Abu Bakr is going, calling his only, only his closest friends and the people that he can trust. And there's all of this difficulty and hardship. And then even when the da'wah, when Islam is proclaimed openly, it's like the weak people, you know, the slaves and the women and the elderly, these are the people that are accepting Islam, but there is so much resistance. There's so much fighting and so on. And all of that leads to what? Eventually a time will come when there will be Thousands, hundreds coming and accepting Islam, and whole tribes across the Arabian Peninsula who are accepting Islam. And that's why it's amazing. You know, like we sit here today, but it's because after the the blessings of Allah, the struggles of those companions, radiallahu anhu, and that's why they have such an amazing position in this religion. Their status is unrivaled. After the prophets of Allah, there's nothing like them. And Allah Azza wa Jal chose them to be those companions to be the disciples of the Prophet Sallallahu because that was no easy task. What they did and what they had to do and what they had to withstand it was going to test them at every level family-wise, psychologically, physically, financially, every single way, socially every every way that you can think of, it was going to bombard them. And so Allah Azzawattil chose them to be those people. So after a time when you can imagine now year after year after year, hardship, hardship, hardship now the prophet is being told but a time will come you will see everyone's accepting islam and as we know that's only the beginning after the death of the prophet what happens abu Bakr, umar they spread islam through you know the, the whole of the byzantine persian empires all the way to you know the modern soviet states and north africa and to the tips of spain eventually islam spreads and it spreads far and it spreads wide after that difficulty right? So Allah Azza wa Jal And that's why And we'll come on to this I think um, You know like Maybe next week If we have the time But the Or maybe yeah, Depending on how much time We have left But that's why Some of the scholars said "Waraitan nas," You will see the people Who do the people refer to Some of them said It's the Yemenis Because of the hadith That we mentioned Others said It's the Jazeera Arab, Right The Arabian Peninsula The delegations That we are referring to Others said you No know, it's further All of the people it's open, it's general, right? And that's why the Prophet, even though he didn't see it, it is mentioned in the hadith that what did he do? He prophesied it. Right? The Prophet spoke about it in a number of hadith that you will conquer the Roman Empire, you will conquer the Persian Empire, and so he prophesied. And so this comes on to that issue. Any questions before we carry on? Yeah. The first three leaders, the Stage of power. You mean at the beginning? Yes. When he first went? I don't think so. I don't think any of them accepted Islam at that stage. So, I is Yes, yeah, so the people of Taif, as we said, their delegation would come after the siege of Taif, so in the ninth of the Hijrah. Yeah, the one that I mentioned to you. So, Uthman ibn Abd they're the ones that, and the idol that we mentioned that's that delegation of Taif. Anything online? Sure? Okay. Sisters, any questions? Okay. Anyone else? Okay, so let's carry on. Another like 5 10 minutes and we'll finish. Uh, so, eight and Nas, right? So I said to you that there are two possible meanings, explanations of the site that Allah is referring to ibn Ashur mentions this in his tafsir and others as well and that is that the Ru'ya what you see is a physical scene right it's an actual scene of the eyesight that the prophet sallallahu would see these different delegations coming and accepting islam right and that's something which obviously will then culminate with what the farewell hajj where now it's not just you know 50 from here a hundred from here a couple of hundred from here it is now literally tens of thousands that I've gathered in Mecca for the Farewell Hajj and the Prophet ﷺ can see all of this right? and that's why in the Farewell Hajj what does the Prophet ﷺ say in one of his famous khutbas لَعَلِّي لَا بَعْدَ هَذَا it is likely that I will not meet you again after this year Right? so the Prophet openly says this and this is before like, he becomes ill it's before the Prophet ﷺ, like, has all of those issues but the Prophet ﷺ is seeing the signs one by one Allah Azzawdin is telling him, Look, you've fulfilled your mission, these are now the results of that mission. And so the Prophet can see very plainly that his time is coming to an end. The also I don't know exactly. So did the Prophet say that to Ma'ad as well? I think he may have. I don't remember the exact wording though. Yeah. That it's possible that if you, by the time you come back I, I won't be here and Allah knows best. So that's like one like um, linguistic interpretation of, of this word, barait. The second one is, as we said, a almost an insight, a sight of knowledge that you will come to know. Right? Like we often say, you know, you see if you go there, you see if you do this, you see if that happens. It doesn't mean physically you see, but that you know through experience and through your knowledge and so on, you know that this is the case, right? And so you have both of them, and both of them, you know, it's possible that both of them are being referred to, the Prophet is seeing people, and he knows that that uh, that acceptance of Islam will only grow; it will only go from strength to strength. Wa al nas, and nas, as we said, some of the scholars said that it's the people of Yemen, as Ikrimah and Muqatil said. Right? It's they said that it's the people of Yemen that are being referred to. Why the people of Yemen? Because they're the furthest away. So it shows that all of these other tribes have come and they've accepted Islam. And now that the da'wah and Islam has reached Yemen, you're seeing that how you know, how much Islam has spread. So this was the opinion of Iqrimah and Muqatil, rahimahumullah. And they said that it's reported that 700, 800 people from Yemen would come in the delegations and they would accept Islam. And remember, that's why from all of those delegations that come, right? Uthman, uh, when, when the people of Taif are going back, the Prophet ﷺ says Uthman ibn Abil as was the one who came and learned the Quran, he should be your leader, right? In terms of your prayers and so on, because he's the one that's studying the Quran. Every uh, every one of these delegations is coming, what's the Prophet ﷺ doing with them? Sending them back, right? The people of uh Abd, Abd Qais come, they're like, we can't come very often. Does the Prophet send anyone with them? No. He says, look, these are the four pillars that you need to know and stay away from these things and thank you. Right? And it's done. They go back. The only one that the Prophet ﷺ sends with them someone to teach is who the Yemenis. Because of how many of them there are, right? And how openly and willingly they're accepting and embracing Islam. Right? And Yemenis, like you know, are, are soft natured people. Even today people, if you know someone from Yemen, Yemenis are very nice people, very soft, very gentle, very softly spoken, right? Generally speaking, they're very nice people. And so the Prophet, ﷺ, they're the only ones he sends with them a companion and not just any companion as we know Mu'adh is one of the most knowledgeable of the companions of the Prophet especially concerning the halal and the haram and and those types of issues so that's the first opinion. others said no it's it's general doesn't refer to the Yemenis and Nas the people is general right and that's you know the opinion of the majority of the scholars of Tafsir. And that's the ones that you'll find you know, even in the in the quran translations when it's translated this verse does doesn't they don't really translate it as referring to the yemenis it is just open that these are the people who will accept islam al-imam al-hasmin basli rahimahullah said that when the prophet sallallahu wasallam conquered mecca and the people of the haram accepted islam and they were the people that allah Azzawajal, had saved from the army of the elephants and we'll come on to that when we go on to surah fiel allah Azzawajah saved them from the army of the elephants allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showed the other arabs a sign that the prophet was true that he was upon righteousness that he was upon guidance and so the other arabs accepted islam and i think we mentioned this maybe last week or the week before i don't remember but it said in many of the books of tafsir and seerah and so on that the arab other arabs were just watching and waiting What's going to happen between the Muslims and Quraysh? Who's going to win? And because the custodianship of the Kaaba and Mecca was so important and so vital in the society and the culture of the Arabs of the peninsula, because remember, all of these Arabs are coming to Mecca to perform pilgrimage, even if they're far away. They're still coming, might not be very often, but they're coming and they're paying tribute to the Quraysh and to Mecca and to the Kaaba. So they're waiting to see, because if Allah Azza wa Jal protects these people and He gives them, you know, uh, they win over the Muslims, then Allah's favoring them. Because Allah favored them when the army of the elephants came. And if it's the other way around, the Muslims win, then it shows that Allah Azza wa has favored them. So when the Muslims won and it became clear, Quraysh has surrendered, and not only surrendered, but they've accepted Islam themselves, the other Arabs saw this as a sign, okay, Allah has judged and now it's clear. And so they all started to come then with their dedications, and they started to accept Islam and become Muslims. fi right? Entering into the religion of Allah and of the religion of Allah is Islam because Allah Azza wa Jalla says in other verses Inna الدِّينَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ الاسلام. The religion in the sight of Allah is Islam. Allah Azza wa Jalla says All of these verses in the Quran they show that when Allah says the religion of Islam, He refers to Islam, afwaja. They will accept it in droves. Afwaj, a fawaj, is a big group. It's a great group of people. Right? As Allah Jalla says, concerning the people of the fire, hadha fawjum ma'akum. Right? The people of the fire will be in the fire, and then it will be said to them, this is another group of people entering into the fire. Right. And Allah calls them the same word, describes them as a foj, a drove, a big group of people. Al-Hassl al-Masri said that the people came, afwaja means ummatan ummah, nation upon nation, right? meaning tribe upon tribe, nation upon nation. Al Dhahak said a foj is anything above 40 people. Anything above 40 people is considered to be a fawj or a group. Ibn Abbas عنه, said it's a drove of people and Al-Kalbi said it is tribes, right? meaning that it is in great numbers that they're accepting Islam. So it's no longer one person there, two people there, a family here, a family there. Now it is tribes and whole you know, like and, and whole regions of the Arabian Peninsula that are accepting Islam and Allah knows best. Any questions? And that's the end of the second verse. So we'll leave the next verse till next week. Any questions? From anyone? It's good, huh? Because if you ask the questions through the class, then there's nothing left at the end. That's good. Okay, so, inshallah, azzaqallah khair, online, hopefully, inshallah, next week we'll have that cape on and then I'll be able to see the online comments as well. Mm-hmm. Barakullah feekum, sallallahu alayhi Muhammad wa ala alihi wa